This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 2 of the Knowledge of God the Redeemer in Christ as first manifested to the fathers under the law and thereafter to us under the gospel. Argument The first part of the Apostles' Creed, that is, the knowledge of God the Creator, being disposed of, we now come to the second part, which relates to the knowledge of God as a Redeemer in Christ. The subjects treated of accordingly are, first, the occasion of redemption, that is, Adam's fall, and secondly, redemption itself. The first five chapters are devoted to the former subject, and the remainder to the latter. Under the occasion of redemption, the fall is considered not only in a general way, but also specially in its effects. Hence, the first four chapters treat of original sin, free will, the corruption of human nature, and the operation of God in the heart. The fifth chapter contains a refutation of the arguments usually urged in support of free will. The subject of redemption may be reduced to five particular heads. 1. The character of him in whom salvation for lost man must be sought, chapter 6. 2. How he was manifested to the world, namely in a twofold manner. First, under the law. Here the Decalogue is expounded, and some other points relating to the law discussed, chapter 7 and 8. Secondly, under the gospel. Here the resemblance and difference of the two dispensations are considered, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Third, what kind of person Christ was and behaved to be in order to perform the office of mediator in the face of God and man in one person, chapters 12, 13, and 14. Four, for what end he was sent into the world by the Father. Here Christ's prophetical, kingly, and priestly offices are considered, chapter 15. And five, in what way or by what successive steps Christ fulfilled the office of our Redeemer chapter 16. Here are considered his crucifixion, death, burial, descent to hell, resurrection, ascension to heaven, and seat at the right hand of the Father, together with the practical use of the whole doctrine. Chapter 17 contains an answer to the question, whether Christ is properly said to have merited the grace of God for us. Book 2, Chapter 1. Through the fall and revolt of Adam, the whole human race made a cursed and degenerate of original sin. 1. How necessary the knowledge of ourselves is, its nature, the danger of mistake, its leading parts, sections 1, 2, and 3. 2. The causes of Adam's fearful fall, section 4. 3. The effects of the fall extending to Adam's posterity and all the creatures, section 5, to the end of the chapter, where the nature, propagation, and effect of original sin are considered. Sections 1. The knowledge of ourselves most necessary. To use it properly, we must be divested of pride and clothed with true humility, which will dispose us to consider our fall and embrace the mercy of God in Christ. 2. Though there is plausibility in the sentiment which stimulates us to self-admiration, the only sound sentiment is that which inclines us to true humbleness of mind, pretext for pride, the miserable vanity of sinful man. And three, different views taken by carnal wisdom and by conscience 
which appeals to divine justice as its standard, the knowledge of ourselves consisting of two parts, the former of which, having already been discussed, the latter is here considered. Section 1. It was not without reason that the ancient proverb so strongly recommended to man the knowledge of himself. For if it is deemed disgraceful to be ignorant of things pertaining to the business of life, much more disgraceful is self-ignorance, in sequence of which we miserably deceive ourselves in matters of the highest moment, and so walk blindfold. But the more useful the precept is, the more careful we must be not to use it preposterously, as we see certain philosophers have done. For they, when exhorting man to know himself, state the motive to be, that he may not be ignorant of his own excellence and dignity. They wish him to see nothing in himself but what will fill him with vain confidence and inflate him with pride. But self-knowledge consists in this first, when reflecting on what God gave us at our creation, and still continues graciously to give, we perceive how great the excellence of our nature would have been had its integrity remained, and at the same time remember that we have nothing of our own, but depend entirely on God, from whom we hold at pleasure whatever he has seen it meet to bestow. Secondly, when viewing our miserable condition since Adam's fall, all confidence and boasting are overthrown. We blush for shame and feel truly humble. For as God at first formed us in his own image, that he might elevate our minds to the pursuit of virtue and the contemplation of eternal life, so to prevent us from heartlessly burying those noble qualities which distinguish us from the lower animals. It is of importance to know that we were endued with reason and intelligence in order that we might cultivate a holy and honorable life and regard a blessed immortality as our destined aim. At the same time, it is impossible to think of our primeval dignity without being immediately reminded of the sad spectacle of our ignominy and corruption, ever since we fell from our original in the person of our first parent. In this way, we feel dissatisfied with ourselves and become truly humble, while we are inflamed with new desires to seek after God, in whom each may regain those good qualities of which all are found to be utterly destitute. Section 2 in examining ourselves, the search which divine truth enjoins and the knowledge which it demands are such as may indispose us to everything like confidence in our own powers, leave us devoid of all means of boasting, and so incline us to submission. This is the course which we must follow. If we would attain to the true goal, both in speculation and practice, I am not unaware how much more plausible the view is which invites us rather to ponder on our good qualities and to contemplate what must overwhelm us with shame, our miserable destitution and ignominy. There is nothing more acceptable to the human mind than flattery, and accordingly, when told that its endowments are of a high order, it is apt to be excessively credulous. Hence it is not strange that the greater part of mankind have erred so egregiously in this matter. Owing to the innate self-love by which all are blinded, we most willingly persuade ourselves that we do not possess a single quality which is deserving of hatred. And hence, independent of any countenance from without, general credit is given to the very foolish idea that man is perfectly sufficient of himself for all the purposes of a good and happy life. 
If any are disposed to think more modestly and concede somewhat to God, that they may not seem to arrogate everything as their own, still in making the division they apportion matters so, that the chief ground of confidence and boasting always remains with themselves. Then if a discourse is pronounced which flatters the pride spontaneously springing up in man's inmost heart, nothing seems more delightful. Accordingly, in every age, he who is most forward in extolling the excellence of human nature is received with the loudest applause. But be this heralding of human excellence what it may, by teaching man to rest in himself, it does nothing more than fascinate by its sweetness and at the same time so delude as to drown in perdition all who assent to it. For what avails is to proceed in vain confidence, to deliberate, resolve, plan, and attempt what we deem pertinent to the purpose, and at the very outset prove deficient and destitute both of sound intelligence and true virtue, though we still confidently persist till we rush headlong on destruction. But this is the best that can happen to those who put confidence in their own powers. Whosoever, therefore, gives heed to those teachers who merely employ us in contemplating our good qualities, so far from making progress in self-knowledge, will be plunged into the most pernicious ignorance. Section 3 While revealed truth concurs with the general consent of mankind in teaching that the second part of wisdom consists in self-knowledge, they differ greatly as to the method by which this knowledge is to be acquired. In the judgment of the flesh, man deems his self-knowledge complete, when, with overweening confidence in his own intelligence and integrity, he takes courage and spurs himself on to virtuous deeds, and when, declaring war upon vice, he uses his utmost endeavor to attain to the honorable and the fair. But he who tries himself by the standard of divine justice finds nothing to inspire him with confidence, and hence the more thorough his self-examination the greater his despondency. Abandoning all dependence on himself, he feels that he is utterly incapable of duly regulating his conduct. It is not the will of God, however, that we should forget the primeval dignity which he bestowed on our first parents, a dignity which may well stimulate us to the pursuit of goodness and justice. It is impossible for us to think of our first original, or the end for which we were created, without being urged to meditate on immortality and to seek the kingdom of God. But such meditation, so far from raising our spirits, rather casts them down and makes us humble. For what is our original? One from which we have fallen. What the end of our creation? One from which we have altogether strayed, so that weary of our miserable lot we groan, and groaning sigh for a dignity now lost. When we say that man should see nothing in himself which can raise his spirits, our meaning is that he possesses nothing on which he can proudly plume himself. Hence, in considering the knowledge which man ought to have of himself, it seems proper to divide it thus. First, to consider the end for which he was created, and the qualities, by no means contemptible qualities, with which he was endued, thus urging him to meditate on divine worship and the future life. And secondly, to consider his faculties, or rather want of faculties a want which, when perceived, will annihilate all his confidence and cover him with confusion. The tendency of the former view is to teach him what his duty is, of the latter to make him aware how far he is able to perform it. We shall treat of both in their proper order. Mm -hmm.
Thank you.